I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. Or maybe I should say Smashville, because yes, today's show is all about hockey and our Nashville Predators. Later in the hour, we'll take you on a journey back in time to learn just how the Preds got their name. But first, let's talk about the team. The Preds got their start in the late 90s. Five years ago, they made it all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals. As the regular season winds down, the Predators are hoping for a spot in the playoffs. Here to talk about their chances is Brian Bastin, reporter for On the Forecheck, a media source dedicated to the Nashville Predators. Brian, welcome to This is Nashville. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor. Pleasure to have you with us, my friend. So, all right, there's 15 games left in the Predators season. Where do they stand in the hunt for the playoffs? All right. Well, as of today, they've got a game tonight uh, up in Buffalo. But as of tonight, um, they are sitting in seventh place in the Western Conference um, out of eight possible playoff spots. So uh, they are in a spot right now, um, but there's a lot of, of hockey left to be played, about 30, uh, 30 points worth of games for the National Predators. And they've got rivals like St. Louis, Minnesota and the Dallas Stars all uh, hot on their heels. So ESPN's NHL power rankings have the Preds at 14th out of 32 teams, which places them in the middle of the pack. Is that a fair assessment of where they're at? I think so. Um, they have been they've exceeded expectations for this year. They're in, I guess, year two and a half of their new head coach, John Hines, uh, after longtime coach Peter Laviolette was let go. Um, and. I think this was a year that a lot of people expected there to be a lot of turnover, uh, team getting used to each other, you know, kind of a transition season. But uh, starting about a month into the season, they went on a little bit of a roll and behind record setting seasons from several of their players, uh, they they sit firmly in the playoff race. So it's been, I'd say the th 13th or 14th is probably about right for what this team is at so are, far. Are they looking at a wild card spot? I think so, but they are in and out of of a third um, third place division finish in the Central. Uh, St. Louis and and Nashville have kind of switched places in that third place role. Nightly, they were they sat in third a couple of days ago, and then last night St. Louis got some points, and so they've moved back up to third. So it's really going to be an interesting race, especially with the prospect of uh, if you they sneak in in the in the eighth place spot, they'll be playing a tremendously talented Colorado Avalanche team. And they, I think every team in the, uh, in the West wants to avoid that. Hmm. So tell me, what are some of the characteristics of the team? Do they play a physical brand of hockey or are they more of a finesse squad? Um, I think more so than in, in previous years, they're definitely a physical team. Um, they usually start off every game with their third line, which in hockey, usually they refer to it as the checking line. Hmm. Um, they use these, these guys, they, they've unofficially nicknamed them the herd lines. It's like a big, herd of thundering cattle, I guess. Um, they're big and physical. They're going to usually start the game off against the, the opponent's top players. Um, and I want to set the tone early by, you know, getting physical, laying some hits in there, letting them know that, you know, even though they're facing off against the other team's star players, they're not going to, you know, lay down and, and let it let it come easily. So that's kind of been their identity this season. Well, fighting is, you know, part of the game for the Preds and all the national teams. But they're there are concerns about player safety. Where does the NHL stand on that? Well, it's unfortunate a little bit. We've seen uh, relative growth in a lot of sports looking at, at football with, with um, the work that Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL and, and the players association have done there. But unfortunately with hockey, it's still a little bit behind the times um, again, fighting 
has its role with within hockey. It's it's you know in history, it's a very old sport. Fighting's been around the entire time, and sometimes it's used strategically to help kind of slow down a game that may be getting away from you, things like that. But with play, as far as player safety is concerned, I think um, Gary Bettman, the condition uh, commissioner of the NHL, came out just a few years ago saying that after the you know they had done their own investigation, they couldn't find any link to um, CTE, um, and concussions in hockey with, with brain damage later in life. And so unfortunately that's not where we would like the sport to be. Um, hockey is notoriously a, a, a difficult sport to grow as far as getting out of old habits. Um, but hopefully we're starting to see some, some strides in that direction. They've, they've put a little bit more of an emphasis on some of the rules to avoid injuries. And I guess relatively, that's a good, a good step. Tell us about some of the standout players on the team. Oh, yes. And then Nashville, I think maybe for the first time in their history, have have a handful of marquee, you know, superstar players. There's, of course, Roman Yossi. Uh, he's the team captain. He's the uh, defenseman, recently signed a, uh, a $9 million contract with the Predators a couple years back. And it's been paying off in dividends. Uh, two years ago, he won the Norris Trophy, which is the trophy given by the NHL to the best uh, two-way defenseman. So a guy who's good at playing defense and being on offense. And he's he's on track to do it again. He's shattered the franchise records for most goals by a defenseman in a season, most points by any player in a season. Um, he's only four points away from that record, which I think uh, in, in this month of March in 14 games, he had points in every single one, except for one. He had um, four goals and I believe 24 points in just a month, which is unheard of. He led all players in the entire NHL in, in scoring for March. And so he's been fantastic. Uh, Philip Forsberg, a longtime national predator, um, he has shattered the single season goal record for the franchise. He's sitting at 37 now, and he uh, looks to be the the team's first 40 goal scorer by the end of this season, which uh, they, the Predators and the, the brand new Seattle Kraken are the only teams without a 40 goal scorer in their history. So it's been exciting. They're, they're an exciting team to watch. They've got uh, UC Soros taking over for the retired Pecorine, who's been fantastic in goal. Um, and of course, there's the rookie sensation, uh, Tanner Janot, who came out of nowhere, was undrafted, a little bit older than most rookies, but has put himself firmly in the conversation for the uh, Calder Trophy, which is for the rookie of the year. Is Forsberg going to be back next season? Oh, man, if if I think my guess may be as good as yours. He's um, he's on the last year of his six million dollar contract. He knows with with every goal he scores, his price goes up and he's a free agent after this year. So Nashville is understandably working with him to try to get him signed before free agency starts at the end of the year, um, end of the season rather. And uh, I think from what we've heard so far in post-game uh, media sessions, he'd like to stay here in Nashville. It's just a matter of, of coming to an agreement on, on the numbers. So I think if I had to, if I was a betting man, I would say he's going to be back, but it's going to cost the Nashville Predators a little bit of money. That is a million dollar question I can imagine. So how did you get into covering hockey? Well, um, you know, it's a funny story. A lot of people, um, like a lot of people here in the Nashville area, I'm not a Nashville native, but I kind of latched on during during the cup run five years ago. And after that season was over, I realized how much fun it was to watch hockey. And so I said, you know, I feel I feel kind of bad that I kind of latched on. So I'll try to watch as many games as I can the following season. Um, so Fast forward a few months, I had just had my first daughter. Um, she was, you know, a lot of late nights, as, as most parents can tell you. And so for me, it was easy to, to volunteer and say, hey, you know, I'll, I'll take care of feeding on, you know, two or three nights a, a month, volunteer myself. And I would find myself sitting in the, in the baby's room in a glider, rocking her to sleep with my headphones in, listening to hockey games. And so that was kind of my introduction into uh, 
following the team and, and getting more used to the sport. Nice. You know, the Predators have a loyal fan base that seems to be growing. When you think of hockey towns, Nashville doesn't necessarily come to the top of the list. Talk to me about the team's impact on our city. Uh, I think it's been tremendous. I think the city finally got to showcase what a unique and special environment we have here in town. Um, when the Stanley Cup came to town, I think that was a lot of the national audiences, well, international audiences introduction to what hockey could be here in the South. And um, I think, you know, hockey in the South uh, has really, you know, has succeeded, has blossomed. Um, Tampa Bay Lightning have won the last two Stanley Cups. Um, you know, teams like the Florida Panthers this season, the Carolina Hurricanes, the Nashville Predators, the Dallas Stars, you know, these are all teams from the American South that are really excelling. And Nashville brings something special that I don't think any other city in, in the entire league can can replicate. And that's just the Music City vibe. And, you know, it's it's something that hockey fans in general are real big fans of, of country music, things like that, it seems to be. And so, you know, Nashville is is called upon to to host things like the stadium series over in Nissan Stadium. They played um, an out the first outdoor game in, in Nashville history. Um, and they really embrace the music and, and the, the themes that, that come from being in this city. And so it's been really exciting to watch. And again, the fans are unlike anything that I've ever experienced. I I'm, I'm, went to school over in Knoxville and was a big SEC football fan. And I, I can pretty confidently say this is the, as close as it gets to, you know, that SEC football fan type of atmosphere here in the South. The, the fans are extremely passionate. They care so much about the sport, but they're also extremely willing to you know, bring new people on. If, if you're interested, there's going to be no uh, ridicule or anything like that. Everybody loves to help each other out. And I, I think that, you know, proof of that is me. I mean, people such as uh, a couple of our guests that are coming up, they, they were influential in, in helping me and being welcoming to the sport and teaching me about things. And I think that's something that can benefit everybody who's even got a passing interest in, in the team. So favorite sport, football or hockey? I would say hockey now. I, I think it's just, it's wow. very exciting. And, and all the breaks in the action in football, it's, it's hard to go get back to being used to. <laughs> all right. You're a convert. So as you report on the team, I have to ask you this. What has to happen for the Preds to get back to the Stanley Cup finals? Uh, I think a couple things. I think the first is going to be penalties. Um, you, you know, I mentioned earlier that they're a physical team. They lead the league in penalty minutes. Um, and that's not, you know, that's kind of by design, but obviously that's not going to give them, it's going to put you put them at a disadvantage in games, you know, with when committing a penalty that you have to play the next two minutes shorthanded, you know, five against four, and you don't want to put your, your star goaltender under that type of pressure four or five times a game, which is about what they're averaging is four four penalties per game. Um, and he's been fantastic this season, but you know, you don't want to put that type of pressure on your goalie four times a game heading into the playoffs. And and speaking of him, you know, it'll be, I think, the the success in the playoffs and getting into the playoffs even will be dependent on how well UC Soros is, can, can play this season. He's already played, I believe he's tied for the NHL lead in most games started this season. And so they have to be real careful not to wear him down ahead of the, you know, a, a tightly contested seven game series in the playoffs. You mentioned the St. Louis Blues and the Predators are like neck and neck battling for a position. What do you see winding down the season as far as the Blues contention are big rivals in maybe taking on the Preds? Um, I think that Nashville, uh, they've had a, they've had a few head to head matchups and I think Nash Nashville matches up very well. I think they have a lot of strengths as far as their defense, their defense core, like Roman Yossi and Matias Ekholm. 
Um, and plus with their scoring line with, with Philip Forsberg, Matt Duchesne, who is having another, another tremendous season, but he's being overshadowed a little bit. He also broke the single season record for goals um, this season, but obviously Forsberg's a couple goals ahead. And so it's not as big a news, but they've got tremendous scoring power. And I think if that line continues to play the way they way ha- uh, the way that they have and the goaltending um, holds up, you know, I think they can, they can keep that third spot, you know, if not higher in, in the, in the central division. Reporter Brian Bastin covers the Nashville Predators for On the Forecheck. Brian, thanks for joining us. We have to take a short break. Are you a Preds fan? Tweet us your stories at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. It was yesterday, back in 1998, when the Nashville Predators first came to be. They sold enough tickets to officially make it into the National Hockey League. It's fair to say the Preds have become pretty important part of our city since then. Whether you're a hockey fan or not, you've probably seen the logo here or there. It's pretty menacing saber-toothed tiger with massive fangs. What you might not know is how exactly the saber-toothed tiger came to be the inspiration for our logo and name. We sent our producer, Rose Gilbert, on a little journey to find out. Okay. And the name of research, I have to start by going to a game, right? It's Tuesday night, and Bridgestone Arena is packed. Preds fans are notorious for being loud. They love their team and the snarling saber-toothed cat that represents them. And that cat is everywhere. There's Nash, the mascot, who is a whole lot less intimidating than the logo. Fans actually used to throw a real catfish onto the rink that Nash would sometimes ride out onto the ice to collect. But that's another story. There's the giant saber-toothed cat head with glowing eyes that descends onto the ice at the beginning of every game. And then there's the growling sound effects that ring throughout the arena after each Preds goal. Finally, there's the fang fingers. During every power play, intense horror movie style music plays. And fans raise and lower two curled fingers towards the ice, like the cat's iconic fangs clamping down on its prey. It's a sight to see. But do the fans know where their team's name and logo comes from? No idea. No idea. Um, I would assume an animal. We know a lot of, especially kids, have become fans of the Predators just because of the logo. And because of Nash. <laughs> lots of kids and lots of adults, too. <laughs> That's Melvin Pulse. He and his wife, Lisa, are longtime season ticket holders. Lisa says she's heard the story. Well, when they were making, building the arena, uh, and they were digging the foundation, they found a saber-toothed tiger skull underneath the building, and they, at the time, were taking um, suggestions for the names of the team, and so saber-toothed tiger is a predator, and so they made the logo the skull, and they called them the predators. She's almost right. It's true. The Preds logo is inspired by a real saber-toothed tiger that once roamed our downtown streets, long before there were even streets at all. To tell the story of the Nashville Predator, we're going to take a little journey back in time, all the way back to the Ice Age. Let's start just a few blocks away from Bridgestone Arena at the UBS Tower on 3rd Avenue. In the basement of the parking garage, smack dab in the middle of spot number 34, there's a heavy metal hatch. You'd never know by looking at it, but just under this hatch is the entrance to a cave where the fossil of the original Nashville Predator was first discovered back in 1971. That summer, construction crews were hard at work downtown, 
blasting away tons of solid limestone to lay the foundation for what would later become the UBS Tower. They were about three quarters of the way done when construction ground to a sudden halt after a worker noticed a strange looking white object in the debris. That's the, that's the tooth that started it all, the saber tooth. John Dowd was a part of the group of amateur archeologists called in to excavate the site. In a uniquely Nashville turn of events, John says that the group's president, Bob Ferguson, was out fundraising with country music stars when he got the call. Bob Ferguson had been at Johnny Cash's house, and uh, Johnny Cash had wrote him a check for $10,000 to help our organization out. Construction had already damaged and mixed up a lot of the findings, but John and his colleagues still managed to recover a partial saber-toothed cat skeleton, including one of its long namesake fangs. Well, we had no idea what was there. We just thought it was more animal bones and, and just a common thing. But when we seen that it was early, there was some real early stuff in there, we, we got excited about it. John doesn't really follow hockey. He had no idea the predators had been inspired by the fossils he helped uncover until they announced the name and logo to the public in 1997. But he's not bothered by it. And we had no dealings with them. Uh, good or bad, and, uh, you know, use that as an emblem, that was fine with us. Wasn't hurting nobody. Okay, so that's where the team got the idea. But I was still curious. What was the Nashville Predator like when it was alive? To find out, I met with Vanderbilt paleontologist Dr. Larissa DeSantis. First things first, this was a big animal. So we're talking bigger than an African lion? The fossil found in the cave under the UBS tower were a specific species called Smilodon fatalis. Smilodon refers to the shape of their saber-like teeth, and fatalis means deadly, which they were. Those big curved fangs? Not just for show. So the purpose of the large saber is basically to uh, let the prey bleed out very quickly. Her shelves are full of life-size casts of fossils, including a Smilodon fatalis skull which she got out to give me a closer look. It's sort of like a, almost like two knifed edge. And so you've got kind of a sharp edge on both sides. And so you can, if you just want to feel along there, there's very minor serrations, if any. Oh, wow. Um, so it's not like tubular. It's, it's like a knife. It's sharp. It is. It's like a saber. Exactly. Larissa studies a ton of different kinds of ancient animals, but she has a soft spot for saber tooths. Sometimes they get a bad rap for being, you know, fierce apex predators and, and killing prey, which they have to do to eat. Uh, but in fact, these may have been, you know, compassionate kitty cats. Today, the fossils are on display at the Guest Center in Bridgestone Arena. Or so we thought. The thing on display is actually a replica from an entirely different Smilodon fatalis skull found way out in California. Turns out, the original went missing sometime before 1990, after the building was bought by a new owner. To find out what happened, I paid a visit to the Tennessee Division of Archaeology, where I found an archaeologist with a particular interest in this case. So I actually worked for the Preds on the ice crew for a couple years there in the late 2000s. Um, okay, how did that happen? Okay, how did that happen? <laughs> yes, you heard that right. Longtime Preds fan, first-time fossil detective, Aaron Dieterwolf. So over the years, that display got reorganized a couple of times as the bank was, was bought and sold to different organizations. And at a certain point, the fang disappears off display. Rumor has it the fang was sent to the Smithsonian, or maybe the Carnegie, 
in researching this site in the last two or three years, I ran down all of those leads that I could, and none of those institutions have any record of ever getting a transfer of that fang. So it has disappeared. We do not know where the predator fang is today. Aaron has his own theories about where it might have ended up. There was an opportunity, and the fang walked away. We may never know, but we do know one thing. The Nashville Predator lives on in Bridgestone Arena, not far from where it roamed 10,000 years ago. It's a good thing that they didn't find an ancient platypus skull. That would be a horrible mascot. Now, I'm pleased to welcome our next guest, hockey historian and author of The Making of Smashville, Justin Bradford. Justin, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much. And, and you're absolutely right. The, the Nashville platypuses, platypi, yeah, yeah. would be very awkward. <laughs> very, 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 very. So take us back to the early days of the Nashville Predators. How did the team come to be? Sure. So it all started back in the mid 90s. Uh, those that are unicorns that have been here for a while know how different downtown Nashville was before Bridgestone Arena. Back then, the Nashville Arena was built. It was not the best place to visit as a tourist. It wasn't a, a destination, uh, per se, as it is now for people to come and hang out. You still had some of your your honky tonks and bars. But even then, it just it wasn't seen as as a place to be. And then the arena was built and that opened in 1996. And uh, Back then, Mayor Phil Bredesen, who later became governor of Tennessee as well, one of the big things was he wanted to be progressive with the growth of downtown Nashville. And Craig Leopold, who was the original owner of the Nashville Predators from Wisconsin, was looking to invest in, in a team. And originally, what happened is they, they were looking at putting an NBA franchise uh, in the arena. And that's why the arena that we see right now still has some unique layouts, especially for those that have been media or journalists or anybody in, in television or radio that has covered this team and looking at the press box. It's not built like a typical press box, as you would see in most hockey built arenas, because it doesn't have a press box. Uh, mm. They had to add that in a little bit later because it was built as a basketball arena uh, and basketball press boxes are on the floor, as a lot of people that cover Sports know. So originally they were looking at NBA franchises, uh, Craig Leopold and then Mayor Phil Bredesen visited both the NBA offices and the NHL offices just to get an idea of what could happen potentially for relocation of a team or for expansion of a team. Uh, one of the teams they were looking at for the NBA was the Sacramento Kings. Uh, that didn't happen as they're still in Sacramento right now. And on the NHL side, they were looking at potential relocation of the New Jersey Devils. And that didn't happen. So they decided to go for expansion and they were able to to be granted an expansion franchise and that was something that happened that began the process began in uh, january of 1997 and on june 25th 1997 the, the city of nashville is awarded an NHL franchise and so that was a pretty quick turnaround uh, for this team to, to have that happen and then so much work had to happen after that uh, to guarantee so many things would happen but they're part of a, of a crew of four uh, four cities nashville included along with atlanta and columbus and Minneapolis St. Paul to have NHL expansion franchises happen as well. So it was a pretty decent size expansion era for the team. So all of that happening before even 1998, they just had to get to the point to be granted an expansion franchise. The Kings stink, so it's fortunate that they didn't come here. <laughs> um, at the time, what was the environment for pro sports here in Nashville? 
Oh, there. They, it, it was interesting because at that time there was already the, the, the Tennessee Titans, which were then the, the Houston Oilers and becoming the Tennessee Oilers, then the Tennessee Titans. That was already in the process of happening as well. But as folks that have been here know or know the history of that team, they didn't come straight to Nashville. They, they played in Memphis and then they played at Vanderbilt and then they finally moved over to what is now Nissan Stadium. Uh, so that took some process as well. So it was a, actually a pretty exciting time for the city of Nashville because they're getting two professional sports franchises in a matter of two years to actually call Nashville home. Uh, but before that, as most can remember, it's it's been all college, college sports uh, more than anything else, the SEC country. And then you'd have your, your mix-in of Atlanta Braves, obviously, because this is definitely still Braves country. Uh, and then probably you'd have your NFL teams that people would favor who was hot at the time. So there were probably plenty of Cowboys fans in the mm -hmm. area or anybody that was, a, that was a transient that had, that had moved here just following their team, but definitely more of a college town. So it's definitely an exciting part uh, to be a part of downtown Nashville and to see the, the, the huge change that was going to happen in a very short amount of time to have two professional franchises come. But it also meant there's going to be a lot of grassroots efforts because people, especially in football, already had their fandoms. And, and I'm sure there's going to be those kinds of things, the crossover just like with hockey, if there are hockey fans here already, there's going to be a crossover of how are we going to get people to change their fandoms over to be dedicated to their new hometown team compared to their previous alliance. I think the Titans that that latched on pretty quickly because they made a run <laughs> for the Super Bowl uh, to play in that their first year. Uh, the Predators, as an expansion franchise, it took a few years to, to make it there. But but the atmosphere completely changed. And as we all see uh, what happened with downtown Nashville, it really did start with that arena. If not for that arena, the entire air about downtown Nashville or just the growth in general that we've seen about Nashville would probably have happened eventually but not as quickly as it did that arena changed everything with bringing main events to the city and for the whole change of downtown nashville you know i just think it's wild that they basically had to sell enough tickets to qualify as an official <laughs> nhl team before mm -hmm. the team even existed and they did so what did pred's leadership do to create a buzz around town like how did they build the fan base yeah, so it was, like I said, it was grassroots. And so they, they had to, one, educate the community about hockey, had to make people excited, and not necessarily focus just on the sport in general, but about the atmosphere and how fun it was going to be. And obviously, Music City being Music City, they wanted to partner up with musicians, and they were hot at the time and, and very well known in Nashville. And so you saw plenty of billboards around the city featuring uh, stars like Amy Grant or, or Vince Gill with their, their tooth blacked out in their smile and got tickets on the billboard uh things like that to really get people interested in the game but there there was already a, a history of hockey minor league hockey in nashville uh playing at municipal auditoriums such as the dixie flyers the south stars the knights the the night hawks uh and the ice flyers so plenty of different franchises but obviously the most storied probably being the dixie flyers uh playing at municipal auditorium so there's already that history of hockey there too so you had people that were already excited about it but then they needed to build on to that to get to that twelve thousand number by by the March 31st, 1998 deadline, because if they did not get to that deadline, it'd be delayed. So you have these four teams that had to meet a certain season ticket deadline in order for them to play in the next season. And if the Predators had not met that, they would have been delayed to the 1999 season to reach that goal. So they still had the opportunity. It's just obviously you want to get started as quickly as possible so you can build on that momentum. The longer you have to make people wait, the slower the momentum is going to be. So they, they reached that goal by a grassroots effort because you had people that were willing to put in the work. And, and some of those people were like Barry Trotz. He was probably the, the perfect coach 
to have David Poyle hire because he came from the miners and he was willing to be out in the community and be an educator and being a, uh, being someone that was willing to be out there and help coach Pete, not just the team, but help coach the community as well and be a voice of this team before they even had any players, but mm. to be out there and, and to do, work with that grassroots effort. And we continue to see that build as well too, with guys that are still active and or getting ready to retire like a Pete Weber or a Terry Crisp, who is getting ready to retire, that they're willing to go out to schools, to communities, to uh, everywhere, to sell not just hockey in general, but the natural predators and the excitement of a game. So grassroots is, is one of those things that was very big for them. And we've seen other franchises after the predators understand how important that was in what used to be a quote unquote non-traditional market go out there with a grassroots effort and build on that excitement. And you saw that with Vegas, especially what they've been able to do uh, and just doing that grassroots effort to, to go out to the community, to be a part of the community is important. You can't just expect it to be the, if you build it, they will come yeah. type of thing, but they built it and they built upon that by being involved. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking all things hockey this hour. My next guest works concessions at the Preds games. Matthew Carfee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate it, guys. Now, Matthew, I understand you've been a Preds fan from day one. Take us back to day one. What was that like? Um, well, uh, sort of surreal here. Um, I came here from New Jersey. Uh, so um, it was a transplant back in 98, right when they got here. So I, I kind of was following the situation. And going to the games early was uh, a lot different than you can imagine uh, right now. Uh, so I guess the Saturn plant and all was down here in the Spring Hill area. So you had a lot of Detroit people, a lot of people from Michigan down here. So when you went to a Preds game, if God forbid they played the Red Wings, it was completely red in that in that area. So there was like no Predators fans yet. And the ones that did go were really older. So they didn't understand hockey as much. So it was really awkward trying to explain to them games. Because, you know, as you can imagine, you're watching something for the first, second or third time. You don't have an idea of really what's happening. And, you know, hockey is such an intense sport with all the action happening right there in that small area so fast, it was kind of confusing for a lot of people, but it was really exciting to kind of see like the like baby born here. Are you, I'm curious, are you a lifelong hockey fan? Um, Yes. I, you know, coming from the area where I come from up in the Northeast, it's, I'm a lifelong sports fan, especially pro sports. You switched allegiances. That's tough for people. How did you it's, make that transition? It's because um, back at that time uh, coming here, Again, we're looking at 24 years maybe here. So there wasn't the technology. I know people can't imagine that, but you know, even cell phone technology wasn't quite around as much as it is right now. And you couldn't watch the games. Uh, I mean, I'm Rangers, Devils, anything from the Northeast, if they weren't on a national broadcast, which hockey wasn't that big on TV back then, um, you're not going to be able to follow your team as much. You have to you know, get the USA Today and hope that they cover a good you know, hockey section, maybe get a good picture or something in there. So there wasn't the ability to actually watch and follow your team as you are now, where you know, the internet and everything is so quick. And you know, being an allegiance to a, a team in, in the, you know, that conference, this is the Western Conference, that was Eastern Conference, you had that you know, that ability to start new from scratch. And it wasn't a transfer team as opposed to like, you know, like the Oilers. I hate the Oilers, by the way. <laughs> Not exactly a Titans fan. But anyway, you had that uh, uh -oh. brand new team that started here fresh, you know, and I was brand new here. And it was a lot easier to switch and, you know, kind of get behind something that was grabbing that momentum like you guys had explained already, you know, that grassroots effort and something like that to see it born. <clears throat> and then over the few years, it just was a lot easier to switch that way. It's kidsmith in a way. 
The Bridgestone Arena is smaller than most hockey arenas. That makes it a lot louder. And Preds fans are known for being loud. Justin, tell me about the infamous Cell Block 303. Yeah, so uh, for, for my book, I interviewed Mark Hollinsworth, who is uh, considered the warden. And the history goes back to, to game one, where he, sitting in section 303, turned around to his seatmates and went, look, we're not going to be good for a while, but we're going to have fun, right? <laughs> and that's basically how they built upon it, is that they wanted to have a fun time at these games. And so they they were taking chants and cheers that, that college teams had, whether it was hockey or other sports, that I know the New Jersey Devils have some chants and cheers and other hockey teams. And they kind of just sampled from, from different sports and came up with their own and made their own unique chants and cheers as well, too, to how they were going to make it a fun atmosphere, uh, to feel like what you, what you hear now, or especially during the Stanley Cup final run, uh, which you could hear on national TV and hear loud and booming uh, to the point to where uh, Pittsburgh uh, media were saying they were piping in noise, even though they weren't. Hmm. Uh, but but back then it was, it was taking and using the, the word, quote unquote, sucks all the time <laughs> in every single chant just to try to get in the heads of, of opposing teams and especially uh, opposing goalies. And it's to the point to where opposing goalies expect it. They, they want to hear it. And, and you talk to different teams and how they, they expect the atmosphere. People love coming here to, to feed off of that as well. And it's it's one of those things. Yeah, sometimes they'll, they'll get into other teams heads or other goalies heads, but it's more about the atmosphere that makes it a fun thing to play in because energy is energy and people are feeding off of it. But that was that was the big thing back then is they wanted to have fun and make it a fun atmosphere for people knowing that it's an expansion team the expectations weren't high but they wanted to have fun doing it and and utilize that and they they created their own website section 303.com and they, they would print out the chants and cheers especially in the early years and put them in the cup holders of the seats to make sure everybody could be in tune you'd have somebody count off the chants and cheers uh it would start just from the very beginning before the game even started when they're announcing the starting roster for the opposing team uh, all the way to the very end after a goal when someone took a penalty uh, whenever a something happened they, they had a chant Crazy. crazy atmosphere. Nice. We're going to talk more about that fan energy after the break. That is hockey historian and author Justin Bradford. Thank you for being with us. Matthew Carfee, super fan of the Nashville Predators. Stick with us through the break. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. This hour, we're talking about how Music City became an honest-to-God hockey town. Can you say hockey talk? Anyone? Okay, okay, I had to get that win in at me if you have comments. Now, Tuesday's night game was a special one. It was the first Kurdish Heritage Night at a Preds game. Joining me now is one man who helped make it happen. Balin Ali, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much. Uh, feel honored to be here with the great personalities that you got. Oh, thank you for being here with us. So tell me, how did this come about? Um, so last summer, this was just an idea um, that floated around and started having conversations with the Preds team. Uh, regarding uh, potentially doing a Kurdish Heritage Night. And they were asking, like, hey, um, does the Kurdish population follow hockey? And um, as you may know, the Kurdish population, he, they, Nashville has the largest Kurdish community in all of North, North America. Mm -hmm. um, 
we follow sports in depth from the Titans to the Preds to soccer, anything that has is associated with Nashville, we follow it. And then we were having conversations with the, the Predators team and they were like, yeah, let's do this. At first it was going to be a Dallas stars matchup uh, because with the rivalry between the Kurds in the U S Dallas has the second largest population and Nashville has the, biggest largest population so we like to go back and forth at it when it comes to our sports team but it didn't work out that way um and um it came to fruition after uh a couple months and uh it happened this past tuesday so what did curtis heritage night look like at bridgestone um curtis heritage night uh included from uh the president a great job of honoring like on their jumbotrons, their screens, and everything like that, to where we had a Kurdish live band uh, performing at Bridgestone between intermissions, uh, where the audience was hearing actual Kurdish music. Um, we, uh, yeah. What's the significance of this? The significance of this for you and your community? Um, well, just recently, Nashville um, Mayor Cooper's office um, gave. March as basically made official March as the national national Kurdish heritage month here in Nashville. Um, and this was one of the celebrations about that. Uh, historically, uh, March around the world is known as Kurdish heritage month with the Kurdish new year, new year starting on March 21st, the first day of spring. Um, and it's pretty awesome that sports teams like the Preds um, are honoring the Kurdish community here in Nashville during that month. Matthew Carfee is still with us. Matthew, when you hear stories like what Balin is sharing, does that make you happy to be a Preds fan? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a pretty cool, unique place to, to be a fan in. Again, Nashville is a transplant town, obviously, with everybody coming here, but everybody seems to be the most welcoming in the South, I guess, as you would. And I mean, this is a, a unique place just to be a fan in. It makes you happy to know that everybody is kind of joining in on the same thing and we all can kind of get common common ground in the same aspect of it. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Le Colonna. We're talking about the Nashville Predators and their impact on Music City. I'd like to welcome my next guest. Megan Sealing is the co-host of It's All Your Fault, a podcast that covers the Predators. Megan, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you become a Predators fan? Oh, man. Uh, it was a million years ago, approximately. Okay. Um, it was uh, I uh, in 2010, I went to my first Preds game. Um, I'm from Seattle, but I married a Nashvillian. And so he was living in Seattle. And one of the things that he really missed was hockey, uh, being able to go to hockey games when he lived in Nashville. So we started watching Preds games up in Seattle. Um, and he, or he did rather, and I was sort of familiar with hockey. Seattle had a farm team that I would go get cheap tickets to watch. Um, but the NHL, obviously the speed, the technical skill, but then also some of the luck that is involved. It was also like invigorating and exciting. So I just, I kind of got hooked. So when we moved to Nashville 10 years ago, it was kind of game over and we got uh season tickets and I've been around ever since. You've been a journalist for a couple decades. When you're covering the Predators, <laughs> what type of stories are you looking for? It's hard to, uh, uh, culture mostly, you know, like it's hard to kind of sum up sports just in sports reporting. And I think that like sports journalism, especially in recent years, 
um, they've started to look at sports teams, not just analytically and how they're performing within the sports world, but also how they fit into the communities in which, you know, they are representing. Um, and so when I'm looking at Preds, the Preds and like stories for the Nashville Predators, I really like to look at like the cultural aspects, like who are these people when they're off the ice? What is it that they're doing within the community? So many of the players on the Predators have done so many great things for the community at large with Nashville. Um, the franchise has partnerships with the, um, with the Children's Hospital here in town, obviously. Um, they just And they do a lot of work with different organizations around town, like outreach work and donating money, donating time, donating goods. Um, so I look at a lot of that sort of stuff on top of just like how well they're playing, which is really, really well this year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, being a sports fan in today's world is kind of seeing your favorite teams respond to current events and incidents involving yeah. players or representatives of the team. Megan, I'd like to get your thoughts on how the team has responded to some of the more significant events of the past few years. Yeah, it unfortunately hasn't been great. That's the bad news. But the good news is that it's getting better. Um, I think, and it's not just the Predators. I think sports teams in, in general, they're having to kind of have this quick, steep learning curve of how to be a part of cultural events and current events without alienating a fan base or being willing to alienate a a part of their fan base in order to be part of the conversation that's going on on a larger, broader scale, especially in America. You know, in 2020 and 2021, there was a lot of stuff with Black Lives Matter movement um, and the Predators at one point, um, they had tweeted Black Lives Matter with the hashtag Roman Yossi, the captain, and some of the other team members wore Black Lives Matter's T-shirts. Um, and that was really inspiring to see. It kind of makes you proud to be a fan, to see that the team is willing to stand up for something like that. Um, hockey is notoriously apolitical. Uh, players are notoriously kind of like mum when it comes to current events like that. Um, but then unfortunately, a couple months later, uh, or maybe a month later, the team tweeted out a, a Black Lives Matter hashtag and then quickly deleted it. Um, and then retweeted the same thing without the hashtag. So there have been missteps. Um, sometimes players are involved with um, with different off-ice situations. Um, Austin Watson was a player for the Nashville Predators a couple of years ago now. He's since been traded. Um, but while it was during the offseason, but while he was a Nashville Predator, he was arrested for domestic violence. Um, he pled no, no contest. Um, and he has been super open and, and really generous with some of the struggles he's faced um, with addiction and with mental health. Um, and that is all very appreciated. But it's also at the time when it was happening, the team was very silent. You know, they didn't say anything about it. They kind of summed it up to, well, it's the off season. So we don't really have to deal with this right now. Let's see how it shakes out. Um, and as a fan, it's always a little like, you want the things that you like and the the things that you love in your life to do the right thing. Um, And so as a fan, when you see somebody or see a franchise um, making a choice that maybe you wouldn't make um, or not speaking up about something that you feel is important, it can feel a little like 
a little disappointing, a little alienating. Um, but the Predators are getting better, and, and I think hockey teams in general across the board are getting better. Um, earlier in, I think it was 2001, the Preds introduced the Guider Initiative, and that's growth, understanding, inclusion, diversity, equality, and representation. It's kind of a mouthful, but it's it's their first step or a big step in trying to bring diversity not just to the sport, but also like their front office, their, you know, their staff, um, to their fans. They want to have pride nights for the LGBTQ community. They want to have black history, uh, represented. They did a great job in February celebrating black history, um, throughout the whole month. Um, and they want hockey to be for everyone, um, not just people of color, but also people who don't have access financially mm-hmm. to hockey. It can be a really expensive sport for kids to get into. You know, think about how fast kids grow. You need ice skates every time they need a new shoe size. You need pads every time they grow. So the Preds are doing a lot of outreach to make it more affordable to kids in this community too. So it hasn't always been great, but it's getting better. It's getting better. I want to thank you all so much for being a part of the show. At the end of the week, I'm going out out of my host chair to get into the passenger seat. Each Friday, you can join me as I ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. Today, I am riding shotgun, but It's not in a car. Do you know what a Zamboni is? Well, I got to see one up close and personal when I took a ride with Nigel Schnarr, senior ice manager for the Nashville Predators at Bridgestone Arena. Check it out. It's a lot of fun, and it's only a little bit cold. All right, here we go. We're getting on the Zamboni. Never thought I'd say that, but here we are. People heard of the Zamboni, but they don't actually know what the Zamboni does. What are we about to go out and do? So the Zamboni, actually, it's it's called an ice resurfacer. So we're actually resurfacing the ice. So there's a blade, a giant razor blade on the bottom of this that will shave the ice. And then the water that's spraying off the back is putting a whole new layer down. Gotcha. So you're taking a layer off and putting a new layer back on. Okay. The, the gist of what it's doing. Is there a difference from ice that I would find maybe in a frozen pond and the ice that is used for NHL hockey games? Our water here is treated, so it's a, a little bit uh, softer. It's get, we take the chemicals out of it. Um, plus, when you're, you're working on an outside rink, that, fro- that freezing mechanism is coming from above, like from the air, Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we're pulling the heat out from underneath the ice. We can control how how low we take the temperature, how soft or how hard we have the ice. What does softer ice mean for gameplay? Uh, typically, you're not going to skate as fast. Um, players' skates will kind of dig into the ice a little bit more, so it kind of slows the game down a little bit. Gotcha. Um, and the only really time you get stuff like that is when uh, your air, your outside air qualities are a little bit warmer. Hum- humidity plays a big part in that, mm-hmm. uh, especially being in Tennessee when it, it fluctuates so much. Yeah, so I can imagine toward the end of the season, playoff time, you guys are working double hard to make sure yeah. everything stays. Yeah, we actually bring in like a secondary air system to blow cold air into the bowl Okay. to kind of help alleviate that kind of thing. So you said you bring the ice in, so at the end of the season, it's, it's all new ice every season. Yep. How long does that take? Uh, from start to finish, from a concrete slab, 
to a playable surface is about 48 straight hours. 48. How how thick is the ice? We'll get it to about an inch and a quarter, inch and three eighths. Wow. It's gonna get a little louder now. That's all right. Now, you, you got the steering wheel, but then there's this other wheel you're operating with yep. your right so hand. That's determining the pitch of the blade that's on the bottom there. Okay. So if I turn it down, I'm going to take off more ice. Gotcha. If I come up with it, I'm going to take less ice. Okay. Off. And so take some finessing. Yep. Yeah. You want experienced drivers that, you know, know the pattern, know exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But it does get distracting with 17,000 people watching you. Yeah. People banging on the glass. Kids trying to get you to wave at them. Yes, I can imagine. But I, it's fun. I'll say, we'll say that. It's fun. Is that is that your favorite part about the job? Yeah, it is pretty fun, you know. And I, I, I like to photobomb people that are trying to take pictures on the glass, and I'll slow down and get behind them and make faces. Okay. Especially the... Uh, the TV interviews on the bench and stuff like that. Oh, awesome. You know. Awesome. I'll be paying attention in the next home game <laughs> while I'm watching. Now, have have any players ever come up to you and be like, man, that ice was awesome tonight? Yeah, uh, I get more of the opposite, but when something's not right, they're going to let me know about it. Okay. So, uh, it'd be nice to get more of the positive, but I usually live by the uh, no news is good news. So on game days, what times do you guys show up to start work? 7 a.m. to around 11 p.m. Woo! So first in, last out. That's yeah. it's kind of a norm with a nice, you're the head ice guy. You're here all the time. Yeah. How, how do you take your whiskey when you drink it? Neat or on, on the rocks? Yeah, <laughs> on the rocks. <laughs> you know, I got to have ice in it, right? Yes, right. <laughs> that is right. Whiskey on the rocks? Sounds good. Thanks for tagging along with me for that Zamboni ride around the rink at Bridgestone Arena. That's a wrap for the week. Can you believe as of today, This Is Nashville has been on the air for one full month? Me either. This show has only been possible because of your support. Nashville Public Radio is funded by you, our listeners. It's the last day of our spring fun drive, and we need you to step up to help us keep this momentum going. Head to WPLN.org to make your gift right now. While you're there, you can listen back to all of our episodes. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A. of Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our news director, Emily Siner, and our theme musicians, Lorange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at This Is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you Monday, everybody. And be good to each other.